Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing the love of Christ, showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of His amazing love. Now here is this week's message. How many people have ever uh, heard this phrase that, hey, I think God's called me to do this, but I don't have a way to verify if it's God? Anyone ever hear someone say that? I don't know if it's God for sure. I don't know if it's God calling me. Like unbelief, uh, one of the things. Uh, there's also fear, like people saying, this is what God's called me to do, but I'm just afraid to do it. And then there's that one that most people get involved with, and that's other people who stop us from doing what God called us to do. And there's a biblical term for that when other people kind of stop you from doing what God's calling you to do because you're worried about what they say or what they think. Uh, there's a Hebrew term and a Greek term, and it's all the same even in English, and it's the term haters, people who hate on you because of what you, the way you live your life in a godly way or you doing what you think God has called them to do. And usually that's the biggest thing that stops people from adhering to living out their life in a godly way because people hate on them because of it or going to do what God called them to do because people hate on them because of it. And I want, we're going to look through uh, 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, pull it out, jump to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, but I'm going to put some verses up on the screen uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 10 uh, to kind of bridge from what we talked about last week into this week. And last week we talked about the fact that Samuel, kind of priest, prophet, judge, anointed Saul as king and how God confirmed it to Saul. He told Saul, hey, uh, Samuel said, you're going to be king, and here are these things that are going to happen after that, and all these things happened prophetically to confirm to him. Uh, and then they had a big ceremony in uh, the nation of Israel. All the people came in, and they anointed him as king uh, so that all the people could see. And when they chose him, uh, they did it in a way so everyone would know this is God. They chose by lot, kind of like a lottery where they had, they put names in a bowl and they pulled them out. And the first name happened to be the tribe he was from, then the clan he was from, and then it was finally the name of Saul. Uh, and at the time that they did this, he was kind of like humble and not prepared for it. Uh, but then it said that Saul also went home to Gibeah, and then there went with him a band of valiant men whose hearts God had touched. And we're talking about the fact that when God puts his Holy Spirit in you, that you can impact and change the lives of others, and God will change the life of others to, again, equip you for what he's called you to do. But here's also what happens sometimes. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no gift. Excuse me, but he held his peace and was as if deaf which is a great thing for us because there's people when God calls us to do something that are going to be like, that's not true, you're not equipped, you're not good, blah, blah, blah. And the best thing that we could do is what uh, Saul did here. Uh, he just didn't listen to him. That's what it means by he was as if deaf and he held his peace. But that word worthless fellows in some versions, it's the sons of Belial or uh, divisive or mean-spirited or evil, or sometimes it's interpreted in some versions as worthless people. And those are the people who looked at him and said, yeah, God says, and we saw how God confirmed it. We saw that it was by lot. We know that this is what God wants, but still, they were hating on him. And it says they despised him. And that word uh, worthless is sometimes translated despised. In other words, they saw and treated him away because of what was in them. Sometimes the way people treat us has nothing to do with us. 
but more to do with stuff they're dealing with. Sometimes people are angry at us because they're angry at itself. Sometimes people belittle us and put us down because they don't see that they have any value. And so they treat other people the way that they feel. And that's technically the way that these, what these people were doing. They looked at Saul, even though God confirmed him in front of the whole nation, and they said he's worthless, he can't do anything for us, because they felt worthless. That's how they felt. All right? Now, uh, sometimes when people hate on you and they don't believe you, it takes you proving it to them before they say, yeah, okay, maybe God can work through you. Maybe God can do something for you. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to trust it until they actually see it. So if you have a Bible, open it up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us. We'll be subject to you. Just a little bit of background. The Ammonites, uh, they're descendants of... Uh, Ah, I forget his name. Why is his name like Lot? I keep wanting to say Abraham, but they're descendants of Lot. Uh, his older daughter um, gave birth to the Moabites. His younger daughter gave birth to the Ammonites, and the Ammonites were constantly fighting against the Israelites. Uh, so they came and they they attacked one portion, one outlying town, right? And they said, "Hey, make a treaty with us." But Nahash, verse two, the Ammonite replied, "I'll make a treaty with you on one condition." that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on Israel. And what he was saying was, hey, I'll make a treaty with you. They were saying, hey, you know what? Don't warn us. We're in the outside, outskirts of the town. We're down here by ourselves. We'll just make a treaty with you. Whatever it is you want, we can work it out. Let's talk it out. And their intent was not to make a treaty with them. Their intent was to destroy them and disgrace them. And what would happen was if they gouged out their right eye, now in war, and we don't do this today, but, you know, with weapons, it's important, too. In war, they would hold a weapon with their right hand, most people, and a shield with their left hand. And if the shield is up with their left hand, their right eye was mainly what was used to see what was coming because their left eye was sometimes covered by the shield. So if their right eye was gouged out, it prevented them from fighting. It was also a sound. It's one thing, like, if I walk in here and I have my right eye gouged out and I'm wearing an eye patch, You'll probably think I was doing cosplay from, like, the Avengers or something. But if all of us walk in here and we've all got our right eye gouged out, in that day it meant, hey, that you just submitted yourselves to another nation as their slaves. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be your slave. I'm not going to fight against you. Everyone has their right eye gouged out, meaning there's no way we can war against you. We're submitting to you, which would be a disgrace to Israel because they were submitted to who? To God. So it would be a visible sign that, hey, these people, they aren't submitted to God. They're submitted to the Ammonites. Now jump over to verse 11. So Saul hears about this. He runs down in verse 11. The next day he separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp, slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two were left together. And in verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men to us and we will put them to death. So the people that supported him as king said, hey, where were all the naysayers and the haters? Let's kill them. Because he just showed he's God's chosen one. But Saul, in verse 13, said, no one shall be put to death to death today, 
for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. So he was still humble. He was still giving God the glory. He wasn't saying, hey, this is all about me. He was acknowledging, hey, God has done this for all of us. Although I'm the king, although I led us in the battle, although I got the victory, God gets the glory. So he said, no one should die today. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal, and there let's reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went, they confirmed him as king again. They had already done this once, but now they did it with all the naysayers and the haters saying, yeah, let's go do it too. And they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. And sometimes the people that hate us, they just need to see us doing godly stuff. Sometimes the people that are critical of Christians, and I get this a lot, I see it a lot, maybe because I'm a pastor, I see it and am kind of more attuned to it, but it hurts when I see people saying, you're a Christian, but, and then they list all the hateful, mean things that Christians do. And they're like, I don't understand it. And that's why a lot of people hate on Christianity, is because, not because of things that God has done, but because of things that we do, and we still say we're Christians, when what they really need to do is see more of God in us, they need to see more of us loving God, and I get, some are just talking to a lot of pastors, and attendance is down at churches everywhere, but, I mean, if I'm a Christian, then people should see me going to worship God, and I get, it's the summer, there's lots of opportunities, people on vacation, that happens, but if I'm out every Sunday doing the same thing that all the non-Christians are doing, then their thing is, what makes you different from me? I mean, why, why do I need to go to church? You don't even go. Does that make sense? They also need to see us also loving our neighbors. And again, you can look online. You hear people talking all the time about how critical the church is of people who don't think like them. And Jesus made it crystal clear our neighbors are people who don't think like us, don't look like us, people who hate us, people who have different religious beliefs than us, different political beliefs. Those are still the people we're supposed to love and especially just loving one another. And within the church, again, people say most divided organization on the planet. We all claim the one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but we all do it in the name of you know, Presbyterianism or Methodism or Catholicism or Baptist or, or whatever, and we don't mix with the other, but we're all claiming the same God. And I could see how people would say, that makes no sense. Why should I follow your God when, you know, you, the guy that lives next door to you, and the other 12 people on your block who all claim the same God all go to different churches and all have different beliefs. That's confusing to them, but it makes sense. So what they saw in Saul was more like God. He was giving God the glory, uh, but then over time, uh, they saw less and less of that, and instead of giving God the glory, he began to take more of the glory for himself. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to serve the people on behalf of God, he started doing things on behalf of himself. And I will say this is true for pastors as well, even pastors of small churches, because most people think, you know, it's the pastor that does all the work, and because pastors are up here, and because, you know, when you go listen to a podcast, you don't hear the entire praise team, you don't hear all the people in the background that make things happen. So it's easy for, whether it be a pastor or a politician or whatever, uh, someone to 
for lack of a better term, get a big head and think more of themselves and less of the God who put them in that position, which is what happens all the time. So um, it's also what happened to Paul. Jump over to chapter 13, verse 5. And this is one of another, another war situation, another fighting situation. Uh, in chapter verse 16, first time, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. And the Philistines, during when Samuel was kind of judge, he's still priest, but when he was judge and governing, uh, we read where God kept the Philistines at bay because every single time when, whenever a fight came up, he would say, hey, you know what, before we go fight, we got to give God the glory. Let's, let's seek God's face, let's determine God's will, and let God determine what we do. But when Saul became king, they did less and less of that. And in verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went and camped at Michmash, east of beth And when the men of Israel saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, hard they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. So Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come. And his men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And he offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making them, Saul arrived, excuse me, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. And here's the first thing that Samuel says. He said, what have you done? And here's the reason, because one of the roles of the king was to respect the role of the priest. The king was supposed to govern the people judiciously. But the priest was supposed to intercede between the people and God. And it wasn't the role of the king to act like the priest, nor the priest to act like the king. And so what had happened was uh, Saul said, hey, you know what, I'm not going to wait for Samuel to pray because I'm afraid of what's surrounding us. And I'm not going to wait for the priest to lead us religiously. I'm going to step in and do it. And so Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And many people look at this and say, this makes no sense. He's going and he's offering an offering before God. Why would God get upset in verse 13? We find out why. He said, because you acted foolishly. You haven't kept the Lord's command. And that's the important part. It wasn't about what he thought or what he wanted. And a lot of times, a lot of people do this. Well, I'm reasoning in my head that this is the right thing to do. But if it's in opposition to what God said, then don't do it. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, kind of like on that level. Is this the right thing? Should we do this? Should we do that? And here's, here's a rule of thumb. You can never go wrong. If the Lord said, thou shalt not, then don't. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. But God said, thou shalt not. Well, how do I know God is right? Well, if you ever raise from the dead, or if you ever become all-knowing, then you get to question God. Until then, I'm going to go with the one who raised from the dead and who is all-knowing, who is king of kings and lord of lords. Here's what Floyd said. Way up there somewhere in the heavens, what God said. Go with what God said. 
He said, you acted foolishly because you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you would have, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man, and this is David, and we'll talk about that in a minute, after his own heart and appointed him leader over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. When Samuel left, he went up to Benjamin, and even then, in order to assure his place, he starts counting the men because he's going towards that place of depending more upon God than himself. Now, uh, here's the thing. This is a major heart issue because Saul, king, God chose him. God put his Holy Spirit in him. God confirmed to him spiritually and amongst the people, I chose you. This is the role. And then Saul got read to him by Samuel, here are the roles and the things that is expected of the king. Do these things, and you're good. You have a nice long tenure. God will bless you. And at first, Saul was like, yep, every victory, give God the glory. I'm going to wait, let the priest do what he has to do. I'm going to do what I am told to do by God, because that's who I work for. I'm serving the people on behalf of God. But more and more, he went to no longer serving the people on behalf of God. He went to, well, I'm the king, here's what I want. I'm the king, here's what I think. I'm in this position, so here's the way that I'm going to move forward, and here's the way that I'm going to have things. And then God said, hey, that's not why you're there. And God even said, hey, I found someone. This is interesting. And I'm going to put this up here. In the Amplified version, he said, I have found someone after his own heart. And it was King David. Now, if you look at the timeline, which I didn't put up here, I should have, at this point, when this happens, when God tells him and God says, hey, you're no longer king, you're done. I found someone after my own heart. David was somewhere between, depending on how you do the timeline, either two years before he was born or a five-year-old. Somewhere between two years before he was born or a five-year-old, I tend to lean on the two years before he was born to zero to the year he was born uh, based on the timeline. So when God says this, I found a man after my own heart and commanded him to be prince and ruler over his people, David was either still in the womb or just out of the womb. He was a baby. But God specifically said, I know what I have called you to do. Same thing he was saying to Saul. Same thing he says about people today, which is why, now, granted, this particular verse doesn't apply to us. It applies to David. But there are other verses that say the same thing. And a lot of people quote this verse, Jeremiah, uh, where Jer God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, approved you as my chosen instrument. Before you were born, I separated and set you apart. And even though this doesn't apply to us, this is to Jeremiah. The principle applies to us because God says the same thing to us. Yeah, God has a purpose and a plan for our lives long before we were born, long before our parents knew each other and before we came out the womb. God knew what he wanted for us, what he hoped for us, what he was going to call us to, and what he was going to equip us to do. And we have to make the decision, same decision that, that, that Saul made, do I want to take the position and do what I want? Or do I want to submit to God's sovereignty and do what God wants? Now, um, in this book, 1 Samuel, eight chapters devoted to Saul and his failures. He started off strong, and then over and over and over again, he fails. Uh, he becomes hyper 
fearful of someone taking his authority, taking his kingdom, taking his reign. And, and just like uh, Samuel said, hey, if you would have listened, you would have had a nice long reign. Now, even though he stays king for 40 years, it's just ridden with his human failures, his fears, his frustration. David, next 15 chapters in all of 2 Samuel, devoted to David. Now, David wasn't perfect, right? We know he messed up. He had family issues, parenting issues, uh, sexual issues, um, 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 also issues where he himself was scared about, you know, hey, is someone going to take my reign? But David over and over and over again when he messed up would go back and say, hey, God, I messed up. Help me do this right. Because he was after God's heart. He wanted to do things God's way rather than uh, his own way. Saul, on the other hand, continually put his own needs above God. So um, actually, before I jump there, jump back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to wind down in time for breakfast with this. Uh, and in verse 17, it says this, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes. This is another instance where uh, there was a battle, and rather than do what God wanted, Saul did what he wanted. And Samuel says, hey, although you were once small in your own eyes, although you were once humble, although you were once um, uh, the person who rather than rush to the throne to be anointed in front of everyone, you were hiding back behind the baggage, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He put his Holy Spirit in him. He called him. He filled him. He confirmed it in front of the entire nation and sent you on a mission, this particular mission, saying, go destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau, and they were uh, not just a warrior tribe, but they were brutal. And back when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, what they would do is they would take the tail end, usually at the back of the line, would be the slower people, the older people, the people on the walkers and the wheelchairs, uh, the, the, the people who were uh, family traveling with lots of small children so they couldn't move as fast. And what they would do is, yeah, the first you know, few million people are up there, but this last few hundred, there's a good distance between them. They would come and attack the women and the children, rob them, kill them, take the women back. They didn't just do it once. They didn't just do it twice. They did it over and over and over. And if you think about the fact that the Israelites were wandering for 40 years, for 40 years, they were trailing behind them, picking them off, picking off the children, picking off the women, picking off the elderly, and robbing and killing them. And it wasn't just them they did it to. They didn't just say, hey, this is the way we're going to deal with the Israelites. This was their way of life. And God finally said, enough. They need to deal with the consequences for their lifestyle and their way of action, especially because they were descendants, just like, just like the Israelites were, of Abraham. And so God said, go wipe the entirety of them out. And I get this question a lot from people, hey, how come God allows so much evil? And you look at, like, the individual that decided, for whatever reason, to go take a gun and do the shootings in Virginia, or any time that happens, and people say, why, you know, if God exists, how come he allows that kind of suffering and that kind of evil? And this is the answer. The only way to wipe out that kind of suffering is to wipe out the people that cause that kind of suffering. 
And there was a time, if you look to the Old Testament, where God would say, yeah, wipe out that nation. I'm going to destroy that nation because of their evil. Today, instead of wiping out the people, God took his son's life instead and gives us the option to say, rather than doing the evil, we have the option to do good by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But he said, go wipe out the Amalekites, make war on them until you have wiped them out. Verse 19, why didn't you obey? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Again, God said, here's what I want you to do. And it wasn't just that he said, hey, I don't want to destroy all these people. That doesn't seem right. He destroyed them all. He left the king, and he took all the gold. His focus, again, was on riches rather than being responsible to God. And he said, I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. And again, if you're going to destroy the source of evil, like when they try to cut a cancer out, they don't leave any. They try to take it all out because if they don't, it will spread again. And verse 21, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And God doesn't want our ill-gotten gains, for lack of a better term. It's like in the days of, you know, you watch the mafia movies, and the mafia people, they're making all this illegal money, they're robbing places, and then they're taking and giving some to charity, and everyone says, look how good they are. Or if you watch the, the drug dealers that... that you know, give lots of money to, into their communities, but they're the ones keeping their communities down by keeping people hooked, keeping them hooked on drugs and addicted to drugs. And everyone thinks, no, don't, I'm not going to snitch on that drug dealer because he's giving money to our community, but he's also the one keeping the community down. And God doesn't want the ill-gotten gains. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. This is what salvation is. They used to have to bring animals to say, hey, we're going to offer these animals. And the more animals, the more uh, it was thought, the more bigger the animal. Instead of a ram, uh, if you were poor, you only offered pigeons. Uh, But God's saying, hey, I don't want the sacrifices. I just want your obedience. I just want you to be in a relationship with me. Because obeying is better than sacrifice. He says, rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because if you're arrogant, you're kind of worshiping yourself. That's literally what you're doing. That's what arrogance is. I am better than anyone else. And he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And then in verse 32, it says, Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Uh, And Samuel is the one who ended up putting him to death. In verse 35, it says, until the day Samuel died, he didn't go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved or sorrowful that he made Saul king. That's what God wants from us. It's not that God wants, and I I have this conversation with people all the time, it's not that God wants us to just show up in church so that there are butts in the pews. God doesn't care about that. Whether you're here or out there, God sees everyone. But he wants people that are willing to seek after him and come to know him. And this is, this is let me put this verse back up here on the screen. He said, your kingdom shall not continue because the Lord has sought out David, a man after his own heart. And some people think that uh, there's two ways to interpret that 
phraseology, a man after his own heart, meaning it was a man, David, who sought after the heart of God. He's like, God, I want to know you. I want to I know the things that you do. I want to love the things that you love. Or he had a heart like God's because he spent so much time with God that his heart was in tune with God's. And although as a human, we said David wasn't perfect, he made mistakes, but he did the thing that God wanted. He sought after God. He worshiped God. He loved God. Uh, in Proverbs, uh, this is what, again, David's son Samuel, sorry, Samuel, uh, Solomon writes, he said, I love those who love me and those who seek me early and diligently shall find me. God loves people who, who want to seek after him, who, who know him, who want to love him. And then John tells us this in John chapter 4, and we're going to end with this verse. This is the Amplified Version. John's, this is the Apostle John. This is uh, probably some 50, 60 years after his encounter with Jesus Christ, after Jesus has been resurrected. And he says, a time will come, however, uh, he's writing this about something that took place before, and he says, a time will come, however, indeed is already here, where the true, genuine worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's having this conversation, and some of us remember this story, with the women, the woman by the well, who's of, of a different culture, has different religious beliefs, and Jesus is talking to her, and I think it's awesome that John recounts this perfectly. That what Jesus tells this woman, and it probably stayed on John's heart too, is God isn't about the sacrifices. It isn't about the offerings. And he tells her, hey, you guys worship this way, and the Jews worship this way. But what God really wants are people that are willing to worship him in truth. It doesn't matter if you worship God with a full stage of light and sound, and I've done that, been at churches 3,000 where, you know, we had the the, all the lights, all the stage, uh, their tech budget was probably two or three times our full budget. And it was awesome. I loved it. It was great. Because it wasn't about the lights. It was, it was, it was, this was the, the, the theme for our worship team, production team, dance team, video team, everyone. Any resource we have available that we can use to worship God, let's use it. If we have people that want to dance, if we have videos, if we have lights, if we have sound, everything that we can bring to worship God, let's use it. Because we want to worship him with everything we have. And then as we said last week, there, there are denominations where they sing, hey, we don't want any of that to distract from us. We just want to lift our voices. And they don't allow any instruments, any music, every week, all the time. It's just the voices, a cappella. Same feeling. We want to worship God with all of that we have just from us. No distractions. We want to worship God in truth. And that's all God wants from people. I just want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we just lift up not just our small little congregation, but every congregation that is seeking you this morning. And even the ones that have the Saturday night services and that were seeking you last night. That every heart would be open to obeying you, to hearing the call that you place on their lives, and to worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would allow uh, uh, just your spirit 
to speak to the hearts of those people that are, as we, as we just read, that are seeking you. And we pray that they would find you. For every person that is seeking to know you, for every person that is seeking your comfort or your peace for an issue that they're dealing with, for every person, every family that was impacted by that shooting, that is seeking your comfort and your peace, we pray that they would find that this morning. We pray for all of the politicians, all of the pastors, every person in every role who calls themselves a Christ follower, that they would obey your word. That they wouldn't proceed to do things in a way that's pleasing to them. But that they would live their lives and fulfill their roles in a way that is honoring to you. Whether it be the president, whether it be at the state level politicians, especially for the pastors that are standing in pulpits and sharing your word. That you would keep us humble. That you would keep us faithful. And that you would keep us, as we read and talked about, obedient to you in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.